There's no secret formula for scaling support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new service hub from HubSpot. It makes it infinitely easier to scale customer support and increase retention. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Proactively drive retention with customer health scores that help keep your business ahead, stopping churn in its tracks. And give your entire go-to-market team the data they need to operate as one unified, powerful front. Also, you can better connect with customers and keep them happy. Secrets out. HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. Mark, it seems like uh, everyone's mad at Ticketmaster these days. <laughs> What's going on? Well, last fall, Ticketmaster's system crashed when millions of Taylor Swift fans, as well as a lot of bots, attempted to buy tickets for her Eras tour. Uh-huh. And just led to this complete, you know, show. Not long after that, Ticketmaster botched the sales for a Bad Bunny concert. And those kind of two things happening one after the other really reinvigorated accusations that Ticketmaster and its parent company, Live Nation, are a monopoly. Mm. And just, you know, stirred up resentment among music fans who have been angry at Ticketmaster over their fees for a very long time. And very recently, in late January, the Senate held hearings about Ticketmaster, and tons of people are saying that Ticketmaster and its parent company, Live Nation, need more competition. But you also found that more competition wouldn't necessarily mean cheaper tickets and lower fees for us. That's right. And, and it really comes down to this. Ticketmaster's clients are not us. They are not fans. Ticketmaster's clients are the concert venues which share the ticket fees with Ticketmaster. And there's one person responsible for making that model happen. And his name is Fred Rosen. I'm Zachary Crockett. And I'm Mark Dent. And you're listening to a special edition of the Hustle Daily Show. For today's episode, Mark interviewed Fred Rosen, who was the CEO of Ticketmaster for most of the 1980s and 1990s. They talked extensively about fees, the business model of ticketing platforms, and why Ticketmaster already has competition, including for sales of the now infamous Taylor Swift tour. Here's Mark in conversation with Fred Rosen. All right. So Fred Rosen, thank you so much for joining us here for the Hustle Daily Show. Fred was the CEO of Ticketmaster from 1982 to 1998. Fred, how are you? I'm good today. How are you? Good, good. Okay. So everyone knows Ticketmaster. It's the most dominant ticketing platform in the world. It's been that way for a long time. But Fred, before you took the reins of the company, it wasn't a behemoth. I think it was transacting on something like maybe $1 million of tickets per year. Could you tell us a little bit more about what Ticketmaster was like in those early days and your early role at the company, and then also how you became CEO? If you go back to the beginning, which was when Ticketmaster was formed and it went through three or four incantations, they were basically a business of selling systems. So they'd mm. sell a system to a building in Norway. They'd sell a system to a building in El Paso. They'd sell the system, I think, to a building in Albuquerque. And then they'd get minority interests in other systems. It was basically an inventory control system. And they owned a piece of a system, an operating business in Houston. In 1980, 
there was a lawyer in Chicago who made an investment in this company, which was Ticketmaster, which was, you know, trying to figure out life at that time. And he put in, I think, $3 million in the company. And then by the beginning of 1982, the company was running out of money and he didn't want to fund it anymore. And because of a number of circumstances that happened when I'd go to these meetings in Houston and some other places, I thought the business model for the company was wrong. And again, Ticketron was the the main upstart in the ticket space at this time. Yeah, they they weren't an upstart. They were the main player in the business. And their business was basically taking allocations for any event. And they'd been around since, I think, the mid-60s. And then when this gentleman who had financed Ticketmaster in the spring of 82 was running out of money, and he said, look, I don't want to fund this anymore. I'm going to close the company. And I said, give me a chance to see if I could put together the money and buy the company. And to make the story short, ultimately, I wound up in a meeting with Jay Pritzker, and Jay agreed to put up the $4 million that we needed. And Jay Pritzker, of course, is the founder of the the Hyatt Hotel chain. Well, let me phrase that differently. We were together for 12 years. There were only two partners in the company, Jay and myself. He didn't own it, and he didn't hire me. He agreed to finance it, and I agreed to run it at at the same time. To be clear, that's one of the great urban myths that float around. And he became like a second dad to me. He was really smart. Hyatt was only one of the companies they owned, maybe one of the most visible they owned. But they owned a lot of business. And Jay and I, and I want to be clear about this, lived on a handshake for 12 years. And one of the things in your article, Mark, which I just would also like to clarify is, Yes, people thought he had a lot of money, which he did, but I didn't have access to that. But all the money, all the advances, everything that was done from 85 on was from operating cash flow of the company. Let me stop you there for a second to, to kind of follow up to that. So it, the year, you know, 1982, you're, you're now CEO of this company that was struggling mightily and, and was going to be shut down. Otherwise. Yeah, and I'm CEO of a company and you needed a team of scientists to find its size. <laughs> and as we w- were talking earlier, there was a uh, Ticketron, which was like the, the biggest player in the space. There were some other small players as well that were also selling tickets for events and, and things of that nature. But what did you do to try and sort of build up Ticketmaster and separate it from those competitors? Well, first of all, I thought that the business had to be the business of selling tickets, not systems. But I thought the way they did things in the business was kind of stupid. And I'll tell you why I thought it was stupid. Okay. One was, if you take an allocation, you never know who's got the best tickets. So if Ticketron would take an allocation, I mean, this is so prehistoric. You'd go to a stadium and you'd see sections that were empty and then you'd see one section that was full and you'd go, that was the Ticketron allocation. What you want is one integrated system. You're an inventory control system. So What Ticketmaster had was a system that could do season tickets, single tickets, group tickets. All tickets could be done on one integrated system. I thought that would have value. I was wrong. It got you in the door, but it didn't buy you anything. Nobody said, oh, well, that's great. This is better technology. We'll just adopt it. We'll use your system. So I said, look, when we do this, whatever tickets you put on sale, we want to sell, which is the beginning Ticketron had one or two exclusive contracts, but I thought there was no point of doing anything without an exclusive contract, because how could you sell best available seat? If you put together a big outlet network, because outlets existed in the early 80s, 
and you put together a telephone room behind it and outside of New York, there were no telephone rooms of any size or significance, then wherever you bought the ticket was next best available. So every outlet had access to the same inventory. The operators had access to the same inventory. And that was how the business got evolved. So to kind of recap here, what you were doing was offering exclusive contracts to these arenas and and you would provide for them this service that kept track of their inventory very accurately. And you were also building up a lot of sort of outlets where people could buy tickets either in person without, without having to go to the box office or they could buy them over the phone and make it right. a lot easier. Right. And then, but that wasn't enough. Yeah. That, yeah. So what did you have to do then? I was sitting in a room and I cannot tell you where I got this epiphany. I wish I could, but sometimes I have original thoughts that don't die of loneliness. And I said, look, how about if you don't like the service charge at this price, how about I add a quarter? and give you 25 cents. And building said, makes sense to us, because here's what I believed. If you think about it, no box office is close to anybody. They serve a community, whether it's 200,000 people or 2 million people, they serve communities. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, do I want to drive to the box office or do I want to go to an outlet or call on the phone? So what we did is we changed the world in the sense of making it convenient, but that came with a cost. And the only place that Ticketmaster could make any money was by service charges, which had existed, but were clearly underplaying the market. Because you saw tickets would get sold with almost minimal service charges, low ticket prices. And, you know, the brokers would put 200 people on different places online and you'd see the prices they were charging for tickets. So I said, look, Here's the question. If you say to somebody, you live 40 minutes from the arena and you're putting, let's say, $2 a ticket as a service charge, so you pay $8 to go to your local outlet, which is like 10 minutes from where you live, to buy the ticket, or you can spend 45 minutes driving to the arena and 45 minutes driving back, was it worth $8? You made that choice. And so they they could either not pay the service charge by going to the box office farther away, or they could call on the phone or go to a closer location and pay the fee. And and now, as you said, the fees were quite low in the early days of Ticketmaster and Ticketron, something like 50 cents or something like that, probably per ticket. But you, in, in addition to just having to sort of like raise these charges for the sort of convenience that it entailed, you also split them with the venue where in the past you charged them or Ticketron certainly charged them to use their platform. But through changing how these fees worked, you were able to share that amount with the arena. Is that right? Yeah, but you have to understand the history of an arena. Let's suppose you own an arena. The food service that sells hot dogs gives 50% of what they sell to the arena. You know, the urban myths that get lost, and I'll use urban myth a number of times. Every contract in an arena or a stadium is exclusive. Food service is exclusive. Parking's exclusive. The people who clean the building is exclusive. Mm -hmm. So is ticketing not a concessionaire? And so when I sat with the arenas and and when I started with the forum and I said, look, I will cut you in as I'm a concessionaire, I'm getting an exclusive, but you'll get a piece and then we negotiated for whatever the piece would be. But I got what I needed and their piece went on top. And so when they got their piece, 
when that sort of whole business model shifted from from your innovations there at Ticketmaster, it meant that these fees were shared by Ticketmaster. That's where you guys got your profit from and, and how you paid for all of the different infrastructure you needed. And it also meant that some of the cut went to the venue, which meant that those fees went up, correct? Which was, of course, in a way that started to make Ticketmaster less popular after a few years is because that service charge was filtered down to the fans. Who would, who would pay to see the shows? Well, who else is going to pay it? I mean, remember something. First of all, Ticketmaster doesn't say, let me, as long as we're going to do this, Mark, let's go deal with some urban myths. Ticketmaster doesn't set the price of tickets. Correct. Yeah. Ticketmaster doesn't determine how many tickets are going to be sold to the public for any event. Fair? Okay. Yeah. Ticketmaster doesn't determine the allocation or the the sections which they're going to get. They said exclusive means you sell all the tickets. You sell all the tickets that the general public has access to. So in other words, some of these VIP kind of sections that are kind of not available when when tickets go on sale, you're saying that that's the, the venue or the promoter is kind of setting aside those seats. Look, if you take an 18,000 seat building, and you have sponsor holes, promoter holes, owner holes, band holes, you might be selling 9,000 tickets. You might be selling 10,000 tickets. You can never tell a building what it can hold. And basically, when Ticketmaster was created, which I did, was I took the heat and set up Ticketmaster as a straw man for people to have someone to blame. Why? Why not? Because every arena manager knew that ticketing was thankless. They, in those days, you had a lot of municipal buildings. And I've got to go tell the mayor I've given up 15 grand. And I know the numbers because I know the event's been on sale around the country and I know how the band is doing. And I said, I'll give you the 15 grand. And he said, how are you going to do that? And I said, I'll raise the service charges by $3. And he went, great, that's terrific. And I said, and I'll keep the rest. And he said, fine. I mean, the company will keep the rest, not me. Ticketmaster will keep the money. So then some music writer there says, how come those service charges went up by $3? And the arena manager goes, boy, those people on the West Coast, you got to keep an eye on them. I'll be calling them. But they're all part and parcel. And in the end, what really counts is think of this. The Pearl Jam controversy was over $2 a ticket. How insane yeah. is that? Okay. So underneath it is this. Fred Rosen's theory. No one pays more for a ticket than they want. No one likes service charges. They were always disclosed. They were, people knew what they were walking in. We didn't hide them. The one time we did an all-in ticket, which was in 94, I think it was for the Eagles, everybody complained. They said, now you're hiding the service charges. So from a ticket com company's perspective, you say you can't win. But here are the points that no one can criticize Ticketmaster for. No one ever said the artist wasn't paid. No one ever said the audits weren't real. No one ever said when a show canceled, people didn't get their money back. So people want to say, well, I don't want to focus on the things they do well. I just want to focus on what it costs. Well, you can't stay at a Four Seasons hotel for what you pay at a Motel 8. And the truth of the matter is the systems and services that are provided, most of the public doesn't see, and the public's not Ticketmaster's client. Their client are the arenas and the stadiums, not the public. They serve the public. And if Ticketmaster didn't exist, you'd have to invent Ticketmaster because you need someone to take the heat. And more ticket companies don't bring the prices down. What sets the prices is demand, and the prices are not set by Ticketmaster. They're set by the promoters, the buildings, the arenas, and the managers and agents of the acts. That's the secret. Yeah. And like you said, just to, to make that clear, Ticketmaster's customer is, is not the fan. 
it is the venue. Those are the ones who you were getting those exclusive contracts with and competing against the other ticketing companies with to gain those contracts. Right. And when we went through our stuff with the government in 94. And to, to be clear, in 1994, you're talking about a Department of Justice investigation, which was prompted after Pearl Jam, who you mentioned earlier, had brought up some complaints about the fees. Right. So most consumers, and most of the time it's written, is people think there's something illegal about exclusive contracts. Exclusive contracts aren't illegal. See, because here's the problem from a legal point of view. First of all, the government always has all the power. So I was pleased that the system worked. If the government could have created a case, they would have. But you still need a legal basis to create a case. And these are the facts that prevented a legal case from being created. And as we know, that's because the Department of Justice investigated for maybe about a year, but there was no real charges brought against Ticketmaster or any major changes you had to make. Yeah, we had the Department of Justice and 28 attorney generals. And not a fun place to be and not something I recommend (laughs) to anybody. But the system worked because the word exclusive means you sell every ticket. That's what everybody thinks. But then when you get past one inch of surface and you, you start to dig down, they were surprised that there's no minimum guarantee of tickets the ticket company gets. There's no minimum guarantee of shows the ticket company gets. The people who don't like Ticketmaster will think none of this means anything, but it means a lot when you're walking into a courtroom. To use that kind of expression, noise, and, and there, there still is to this day, obviously you're no longer involved with Ticketmaster, but people still get very aggravated about the fees. We have every so often, including right now, Some governmental organizations will do an investigation, the Department of Justice right now. Sometimes it's been sort of state attorney generals and and things of that nature. Does it bother you that people get so aggravated at at this system that Ticketmaster largely created of having these fees that have continued to go up because they're split among so many parties? It's sort of like whack-a-mole. You would think that after all these years that you've gone through this, that you wouldn't be going through it again. But I have to be entirely respectful of the government. They have the power. And if if senators or congressmen want to do investigations, that's their right. If everybody looks at the Taylor Swift controversy, you would think they failed. They took in more than $500 million in one day. There's no ticketing system can do that. If you take away banks, if you take away brokerage firms, if you take away Amazon and Walmart, Very few systems that I'm aware of could process more than $500 million in a day. And yet everybody thinks they failed. Well, part of that is preconditioning the market. And part of that is when you get three and a half billion attempts all within, you know, a short period of time and you have the bots and the technology, there's no system that can handle that. It blows up. I'm going to say something that'll probably get me in trouble, which (laughs) generally does. These are the same people who stole the music. Does anybody remember Napster? Does anybody remember that the business used to be, it was, it was first 90% recorded music, 10% live sales. Then CDs came along and it was kind of like 60-40, 60% recorded, 40% live. Then Napster came along and everybody's career got wiped out. They couldn't make any money from selling albums or selling CDs or selling whatever. And then Apple comes along and now they're selling tracks. They're not selling even albums. And so... The dynamic is the only place they make money, for the most part, you know, forget, you know, the superstars like Taylor Swift or U2 or some of those kinds of people, 
And by the mm-hmm. way, she, she will make more than $300 million, just to put this in perspective from the store. You know, nobody seems to understand that simple concept. Right. But I mean, I think that people, they, they just feel aggravated at the fact that they they buy a ticket. And, and obviously, in the case of Taylor Swift, it was different because the system crashed and there were a lot of technical issues because of the amount of demand. But they get aggravated because there is this, you know, $30, $40 fee all of a sudden after they've just purchased a $100 ticket. And, and I think they, they just can't, they, they, they don't like that. Well, <laughs> people don't like that. I understand that. But Ticketmaster collects the money. And they think that Ticketmaster is very powerful because it is obviously the main player in the market by far. Okay. And why is that? I'll tell you why it is. Because if any system was better, people would leave. And here's the reality. And, and by people, do you mean venues? Yeah. Look, AEG was the promoter of this event. Of the Taylor Swift tour, yeah. Yes, they used Ticketmaster because Ticketmaster had the contracts. Well, yes, yeah, exactly. They, they didn't have a choice. AEG okay. had to use Ticketmaster. In some places. Right. The truth is, I started this 40 years ago, right? You would agree, 1982. So we're 40 yes. years. Contracts last between three and five years. How many contracts has Ticketmaster lost in the last 40 years? It got bigger. It gets bigger because when I ran the company and when I became the CEO and built it, people leaving Ticketron to go to Ticketmaster was like walking off a curb. There was terrible service, system was bad, equipment was awful, audits didn't talk to each other. I could give you a dozen, which would bore most of your listeners. Ticketmaster does all of that really well. So if a system's going to beat them, they have to do it really well. And no system can beat them because they can't do it really well. They don't do it better. And you know, and I know that inertia is very powerful. People don't want to change unless they have to. And the perspective mm. is these buildings, to a great extent, are not to get held together by the power of Ticketmaster. They're held together because they're a better product. And no one wants to deal with that. Taylor Swift is one off. And by the way, Artists always underplayed the market, and I could go back to 93, 94, I can't remember, because, you know, but when the Spice Girls, when they could play 10 Madison Square Gardens, they put 12,000 tickets on sale. That's what they wanted to do, because they wanted to seed the world and keep people out so it would sell tickets for their national tour. It was a four-minute sale. It led to investigations. It led to young girls crying on television. I didn't get tickets. If you want to put away the process of making everybody happy, play more dates. It's a, it's a secret in the world of urban myths that all good artists underplay a market so demand far exceeds supply. What happens when demand exceeds supply? Prices go up. The fallacy in the business is this myth, and it's a myth, that if we had more ticket companies, the prices would come down. No. And why is that? Why is that a myth? Because it's not true. Because demand creates the price, not the ticket company. If you have, let's say, three shows where there's 45,000 tickets, and it's one ticket company versus five ticket companies selling the 45,000 tickets, what sets the price? The demand. It doesn't make a difference whether how many ticket companies you have. It makes a difference how many tickets you have. So as it is, you know, Ticketmaster's, you know, by far the largest right now, but there's also SeatGeek, which sold a couple of the shows on the Taylor Swift tour. 
for instance, and also had had the same issues, had the same issues as Ticketmaster in terms of its system. And then obviously AEG has access, its own ticketing platform. Now, what I what I want to ask here is, as we've talked earlier, you said that the, the ticket platform's customer is the venue. It is not the fan, not the person who's paying to buy a ticket. So they are these three companies and, and probably some smaller ones. And let's just say if there were more, they would all be competing to win a contract with that venue. Right. So what would happen, I, I guess? Like everyone is saying, well, there needs to be more competitors. But if, if we kept the status quo for everything else as is, if there are more people gunning for those exclusive contracts, you've said that you believe that would mean we'd probably just see higher fees. Is, why, why is that? Okay. So now you're getting $500,000 from Ticketmaster. Okay. You're the arena. And now Seat Geek, No Geek, Some Ticks, Few Ticks, I'll Never Have Ticks shows up. Okay. And they say to you, oh, we're much nicer than Ticketmaster. We can do everything they do and we're going to lower the service charges. And you go, okay, great. How much do I get? Well, if I lower the service charges, I can't pay you half a million dollars. I'm going to pay you a quarter of a million dollars. Well, you have a couple hundred people who work for you. You have debt service on the arena. You have maintenance that you have to pay to go deal with that. And you go, why would I take less? The public pays. I have somebody get the blame for selling tickets so it doesn't fall on me. Nobody blames the arena. Nobody blames the promoter. No one blames the artist. They only blame the ticket company, right? So if I'm going to compete with you and, and you have this person who's come to see you, they're going to say to you, look, Ticketmaster is paying you $500,000 a year. I will give you a million. You go, million? That's great. Well, you're not going to pay them a million dollars a year and your service charges are going to be less than Ticketmaster's. They're going to be more. The very essence is it will be more, which will bring the prices to the public up. It's a backwards model that I must say I created and did not understand what I created until I did it. Uh I was always amazed at the outrageousness of people saying, I don't want to pay these service. They liked it at the beginning. Then as service, as the price of tickets grew, you know, and, and service charges went up, not necessarily by percentage, but they went up. They went up higher, but not the percentages necessarily didn't change. All of a sudden, Ticketmaster became the enemy. And and music writers would say, this is the end of the world as we know it because of what you're charging. But let's go back to the following. No one pays more for a ticket than they want. So and I think we maybe we'll kind of wrap this up here on on that. But you, you've shown how you believe Ticketmaster has been this very powerful company in large part because it's just been doing a lot of successful sort of things for its clients. I guess to to just ask a final question, do you ever see there being some more competition and things changing in this industry? I'll give you a quote that one of the arena managers said to the Department of Justice when they were asked that exact question. He said, Ticketron was lousy and they controlled the market and Ticketmaster replaced them with a better product that worked to serve the facilities and the clients they had. The day that Ticketmaster stops doing that, we'll find another ticket company. And the reality is, when somebody comes along with a better product, they'll beat Ticketmaster for the inventory control system, but it's not going to change pricing. This is the urban myth. Pricing will not change. The premise of how Ticketmaster got built was really simple. Under-promise, over-deliver, 
system reliability, 24 by 7, 365. We take the heat for you. We give you accurate audits. You can now roll into multiple shows that you couldn't do before because it would take two days to sell one show. Now it took 20 minutes. So you could do two shows or three shows. How much more money did the artists make? Because the routing schedules could be better because the system was accurate and fast. Nobody talks about that. So when someone comes along with a better mousetrap and is better at their job than what Ticketmaster is, they'll be Ticketmaster. The question you should have asked me is, did I ever think this would last 40 years? The answer is no. So, you know, I mean, nothing lasts this long. So on one level, I'm flattered. On another level, I'm just amazed that it's the same discussion. I'm amazed that the world hasn't moved on. And I'm amazed that people don't understand the Volstead Act failed in the United States because people wanted to drink. War on drugs is a failure. Let's be serious about that because people still want to do drugs. Gambling, most of gambling was illegal until now all of a sudden you see all the leagues allied with DraftKings and all of that. None of that changed. Ticketing is driven by emotion, not by law. Ticketing is driven by the need to be in the same building as the artist or the team. And it comes with a cost. All right, that's going to do it for our episode today. Thanks for tuning in to the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today was Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. If you want to read Mark's full story on Ticketmaster, you can find it, along with many more business and tech features, over at thehustle.co slash stories. And if you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter and receive these stories every week in your inbox, you can sign up at thehustle.co slash email. We'll be back tomorrow with a regular episode. Hey, everybody. I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work. And it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team Alan, Leanne Elliott as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts.